Well, happy 11th day of Christmas. As you do know, it starts the day after when we can do the 12 countdown. Here, we got our text for today. Um, because you're a captive audience, I get to tell you a grandson story. Um, so little Caleb, four years old, her, is our, our daughter, Tresina, who's the piano player, um, decided to demonstrate with little Caleb the ABCs on the piano. You know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P. But that's not the alphabet on the piano. It ends with G. And so, going through it, and Caleb looks at Tresina and goes, well, where's the rest? Where's the H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P? And Tresina says, well, it just isn't. There aren't any. And so they played that game for a little while. <clears throat> Tresina walked away. Caleb continued to pound on the piano and then shouted very loudly, I found the H. <laughs> anyway, that's just too precious. Um, anyway, thank you. Our text for today is rather appropriate. Since this morning, as a church, we will participate in the institution of the Lord's Supper, which is nearly 2,000 years old. In our text today, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34, is that main passage in Paul's writing. We had talked a little bit about it back in chapter 10. Uh, I gave a little kind of a preamble of about a month ago or so. Oh, I saw, I forgot myself. <laughs> you forgot to get yourself one? There we go. Um, <clears throat> now, can you name all the different names that we give to the Last Supper? Communion. Okay, the Last Supper, communion. Eucharist. Hmm? Eucharist. Eucharist. The Lord's Supper. Lord's Supper. Lord's table and the Catholics. Bread and wine. Mm -hmm. bread, and bread and wine. Breaking bread. Breaking bread. Okay. And then the Catholics have it pretty much every day. Mass. Or that's actually the total ceremony, but part of that is the Eucharist. Isn't it interesting? We come up with all these different names <clears throat> to, to try to describe one thing. When most people approach this particular section of scripture, they skip verses 17 through 22 and get to the good stuff. And then they skip again after verse 25 uh, because it's just simply not the good stuff. Well, we never skip the boring stuff. We gotta go right into it because it's really interesting the context into which Paul's teaching is presented to us. He starts with these extraordinary words, verses 17 through 22. <clears throat> he writes, But in the following instruction, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. One translation has the last half of that sentence as, your meetings do more harm than good. Now, this is a contrast to chapter 11, verse 2, where Paul writes, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. And here we are, 15 verses later, he says, but I cannot commend you because when you come together, you do more harm than good. This is about as condemning of a statement that you could ever level against a church. Could you imagine the Apostle Paul or Jesus walking into Camelback Bible Church and from the front say, your meetings do more harm than good, so stop meeting. Close this place down because what you're doing is an abomination. 
wait, what? what what's, what's wrong? What, what are we doing wrong? I don't understand. Well, Paul goes on. He elaborates. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, and by the way, the phrase come together is used five times in this passage. Verse 17, verse 18, verse 20, verse 33, and verse 34. I'll read them again. 17, 18, 20, 33, and 34. You have the, the, the phrase, come together. It's not used that often in Paul's writings. But right here, over and over and over again, he emphasizes the fact that when you come together as a group, we got problems. He says, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Well, that's no surprise. Back in chapter 1, we had the factions, which are mentioned here in verse 19, of I am of Apollos, I am of Jesus, I am of Paul, and there, you know, there's these factions even within the church. So he says, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine may be recognized. In other words, factions can be a good thing. That's interesting. Unless absolutely everybody in the congregation always agrees on everything. Can you find me that church? I don't think it exists. There's always something where people are going to disagree. But you disagree and how you disagree and what you're disagreeing on is the important part. Because, as he says, if there are disagreements, well, it allows the truth to come forth in healthy dialogue. But, verse 20, but when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do, do, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? What and shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Okay, what's going on? Well, first thing you have to think about is where did they come together? Where was church held? In a big sanctuary, like the one on Central and Camelback, or Central and Bethany Home, North Phoenix Baptist, or this one right here? No, where did they meet? In houses. So they met in the poorest member of the church's tent. No. They met in a wealthy person's home that was big enough. Oh, we got some more handouts here. Looks like we're gonna use up our allotment. Good. Um, that was big enough or large enough to handle whatever sized crowd, a home church to use modern language. There was no such thing as any alternative. They would meet in a home. It was very common to have a feast as part of the service or part of their gathering together. And typically, I mean, when I grew up in the church, you'd have, you'd have potluck, usually around five o'clock, and then you'd have an evening service afterwards. Or sometimes, if you have to have your potluck on Sunday, you have the service first and then you have the potluck, right? Well, here, they had the potluck at the rich person's house. But the rich person didn't invite everybody. He only invited his friends, the wealthy friends. So the wealthy friends were coming in, having this wonderful, great feast. Some were getting drunk. And then the leftovers were left for those who came later. So those who were poor or uninvited or <coughs> disadvantaged, they would get the, you know that part of the chicken wing that nobody wants? 
you have the nice little tiny little drumstick thingy and then you have that middle part the, the thigh which is so wonderful and then you have that thing that's usually overcooked and there's no meat on it that's what everybody else got Wing tips. yeah <laughs> <laughs> this is just not right and yet they were calling it a fellowship meeting, a koinonia, a coming together. Paul hears about this and he's saying some of you are going hungry and some of you are getting drunk for goodness sake. This is not the point. And you might say, well Steve, this has absolutely no relevance to the modern day church. Absolutely none. When we come together for our communion service, there ain't even enough to slake my thirst much less get drunk, because it's grape juice, for goodness sake. You know, we might get a sugar high, but that's about it. And that little wafer, you know, all you do is you, you eat it too quickly, and then you inhale, and you start choking on the dust. <laughs> you know, that's about as good as it gets. Well, no. The principle here is everyone was to participate together. There is a word union in the word communion for a reason. People come together. He says, when you come together, everybody comes together. A summary of what went wrong is, I can just, I'll just read this. The Corinthian Christians were not waiting for the poor to participate in the Lord's Supper, but were going ahead without them. The affluent Corinthians were satiating themselves with their own food and wine before the poor arrived, so that the haves had more than they needed, while the have-nots were deprived of what they needed. The poor were then excluded from participation in worship from the benefit of the food brought to the Lord's Supper. In other words, people were bringing food for this supper, but they were eating it all. In the way the Corinthians were conducting the Lord's Supper, the poor were being publicly shamed and humiliated by exposing their deficiencies rather than concealing them and providing for them. The treatment of these poor were a denial and a distortion of the gospel, which they symbolized and proclaimed by the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, which commemorated the sacrificial gift of our Lord's body and blood, had been perverted to an occasion for self-indulgence by giving way to selfish bodily lusts. No wonder Paul was angry when he heard about this. Obviously, there a report had come to him over in Ephesus when he wrote this letter and said, you guys know better. And he really came down on them hard. Now, I would do want to clarify one thing, and I actually I had listened to a part of what I taught the last time I was talking about the Lord's Supper in chapter 9, because I want to make sure I was being consistent or not repeating myself. I made the comment that the Lord's Supper, or communion, is the only sacrament that we repeat multiple times. And then I said, because we don't get married every week, I hope. And I made a joke about that. Or we don't get baptized every week. And then I made a joke. And then I realized later, I shouldn't have used the word sacrament. There's a difference between a sacrament and an ordinance. Now, I know this is semantics, but it's important that we have this distinction in our body. We tend to use the words, and we rarely use the word uh, ordinance in our circles, <laughs> We usually talk about the sacrament, but sacrament is actually a Catholic terminology. In the Catholic Church, there are seven sacraments. Can you name them? Baptism. Baptism. Confirmation. Confirmation. Communion comes next. Penance. Then comes confirmation. Penance. Confession. Confession. Marriage. Holy orders okay. and anointing the sick. Those are the last two that most people don't remember. And you go, well, what is holy orders? Well, that's uh, deacon, priest, bishop. Now, this, the Catholic Church, and this is a quote from their own material. 
There are seven sacraments. They were instituted by Christ and given to the church to administer. They are necessary for salvation. The sacraments are the vehicle of grace which they convey. In other words, when you, when in their, in their service, when they are presenting the Lord's Supper, they are conveying the grace of Christ to that person. And that was a means by which they would receive it. That's a pretty important distinction. Because that is a, one of the key teachings of the Catholic Church, is that the sacraments are a means of grace. The Protestant Reformation countered that and said, no, grace is not something you earn or receive by a priest handing it to you. It is a gift of God. And so there are only two ordinances that the Protestant Church will support. The others are fine. We can't say that there's something wrong with having a, uh, a special ceremony to um, anoint a, a pastor. You can't say it's that the marriage is not a sacred event, but it's not an ordinance that is commanded by Christ. There's nothing in the Bible where Christ says, get married. Find it for me. It's not there. So, we are left with two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. They are a symbolic reenactment of the gospel message. They are not required for salvation. These ordinances are determined by three factors. One, instituted by Christ. Two, taught by the apostles. And three, practiced in the early church. And only baptism and the Lord's Supper fulfill those three requirements. So I just had to make that clarification because I realized I had said something flippantly just to make a point and then realized later mm, that's not exactly accurate. So let me correct it. So we move to verse 23 which we can call the good stuff. I've got a handout here for everybody. I'll let you get, get Mitchie, I'm wearing you out here. Okay. This particular handout, page one, is something that I adapted from a chart found in I. Howard Marshall's book on the Last Supper, which compares all three gospel accounts of the Lord's Supper and the first Corinthian account. I'll wait till everybody has one so we can look at it together. We're not going to absorb all of this in our sitting. I had the fun of meditating on this for a couple hours as I was putting it together, as I was working through it. But you can see line by line the comparison or the distinctions between the various accounts. Does everybody have one? <laughs> We're good. Everybody good? Okay. All right, we're good. So. No? All right. <laughs> if you need more, email me. <laughs> I have this in a document I can send to you. What is very interesting to me as a Bible student, and as our class, since we've been going through the Bible chronologically, we went, we're going through it chronologically in timeline. But if we were going through the Bible in chrono chronological time, in, in terms of when the books were written, 1 Corinthians was written before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Think about that for a second. This letter was written around 54, 55 AD. The earliest guess for Mark is around 58, maybe 60, and then Matthew maybe around 60, uh, Luke around 62 to 65. We're not sure exactly because they didn't, you know, they didn't copyright it properly. Um, 
1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 25, is the first instance in recorded New Testament writings of the ceremony of the Last Supper. So if you look on that last column you th and then go off to the left, you can see how they agree with each other. Maybe not word for word, which I think is wonderful, because if it was verbatim, then people would start doubting the veracity of these, these accounts. But when you have variations, you can say, well, you know, this is what I remember. And Mark is likely the memories of Peter. Matthew was there. Luke is likely the memory, the collective memories of the apostles, because he interviewed everybody who was that he could. Paul, he both had revelation from Christ himself that we can point to, but he also had interaction with the other apostles. So when you have this and you look at it, you kind of go, wow. Now where this chart gets a little interesting for you, and you can look at it later, is in the bottom right-hand corner. I have a line across the two columns because those are repeats of what you see in the top of the column from Luke. But they connect with Matthew and Mark. They're just in a different place. Just so, That's just something for your own uh, scholastic interest, if you'd like. The differences are very minor between these accounts. There are differences, but nothing to change the nature of the story or what's going on. So you have Paul writing, verse 23, For I received from the Lord, as I mentioned, either from a direct revelation or from the collective um, accounts of the apostles that he knew. What I also delivered to you, meaning when he was in Corinth, he set up how the Lord's Supper was to be done in the early church. Obviously, that meant he had done it in every church plant he had ever been at. It's not mentioned in any of the other epistles because the other people didn't screw it up. <laughs> These guys did. And so he's writing to correct it, and he's repeating what he had already taught them. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. Now that word bread can also be translated as loaf. It's singular. One piece of bread. Now in some ceremonies, you may have been in them, there's a common loaf that everybody breaks off. Um, for our church, it's symbolic. The loaf is in the front, the cup is in the front, but then we each have our individual pieces because it's just a, it's a parallel. We're not actually eating from the same loaf. I would say health-conscious people would have a problem with eating from the same loaf. Yeah. Uh, not to interrupt, but I just right. saw something on PBS. There was something about Sun City, these Jewish people who are retirement people in Sun City, and they get together and they celebrate Shabbat every week at a, a Wendy's or something. And they have the challah bread. And something I never noticed before is when you share a challah bread, it's braided. When you pull off a piece, it tears like perforation. Mm -hmm. Each of those sections that's braided breaks off for one serving. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting. I never noticed that. It's, very, it's very intentional. Yeah, I never knew that. I had one, that. Uh, one writer was talking about the first time he was in a, on the mission field and he was in Haiti and he took the loaf, broke it in half because there was only three or four people and he handed one this way and one that way. That guy took the whole loaf. And he ate the whole thing. And he's like, oh, that's not how it's supposed to work. <laughs> You're supposed to pass it around. But I was hungry, so he got fed. It was pretty, he said, it was, he says, I didn't quite know how to handle that one, but it's just one of those amusing moments. You don't always assume that everyone knows how this works. Imagine a visitor coming to Camelback Bible Church this morning, having never been in church in their entire life neither Catholic, Orthodox, any sort, 
And they watch this and they're going, what in the world? Why are they handing out snacks? <laughs> Seriously, what's going on? We tend to assume everyone knows what's going on. But it isn't always the case. So we have to, I think sometimes, when, if ever, the pastor does explain it a little bit more, be patient. He's not talking to you. Because there are times going, why are you toying over this again? We already know this. No, not everyone does. This may have been only the second time they've heard it, or the third time. Those of us who've grown up in the church our whole lives, we've heard it a gazillion times to the point we could repeat it without a prompt. But we can't make that assumption for everybody. Steve? Yeah? I was just going to share, you know, we do nursing home, and today is cleaning Sunday here, so that's what we do at the nursing home. It's unbelievable. I've been thinking about this, but why is it that all of these senior people, most of them pretty senior, can't seem to remember that they take this together? You know, as soon as they get it in their hands, it's in their face, they've eaten it, it's gone. Uh-huh. You know, and well, there are some traditions where that's how it's done. Oh, really? Yeah. Is that as soon as you receive it, you take it. There's no unity of taking. So it depends maybe how they grew up. If you think of the Catholic Church, sometimes, depending on the situation, you walk forward, and then you are given it, and you consume it right there. You don't take it back to the pew with you and sit down and then take it as a body. So that's probably why. No, it just may be a tradition, it's what they remember on how to do it. Or they just, they're being fed something so they eat it immediately. So that may be part we, of it. We have to keep it out of Teddy's hand until we all get together, or else Teddy will soon to be, he has a hard time holding on to it. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. Can you guys you guys been explained to you, you see everyone handing out snacks, like, okay, here's, here's mine, I guess. Why hasn't everyone else eaten theirs yet? Yeah. And then, this is my dues together, oops. Yeah. It's a learning experience. Then there's no fault. It's just something that happens. It's interesting. And I actually thought about this for a while. Then I came across an article that answered my question. Why bread? Why not the lamb? There was sacrificial lamb right there in the Passover. It's all part of the ceremony. Wouldn't it have made more sense than since he was the... Lamb of God to present that as the example? And I really didn't have an answer for that. It was more of a, hmm, an interesting choice. Um, until this article said he had the same question. And it was this, he said it was this moment of flash of, oh my goodness sake. Because if Jesus had chosen the Lamb, he would have indicated that, we could, that the sacrifice and the blood must continue. There's no blood or sacrifice with bread. He specifically chose one of the pieces on the table that was not a repeat of what he was going to be doing in just a few days. Isn't that interesting? And the link to the Old Testament is, again, it's a supernatural gift. Right. Right. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. And isn't bread the staff of life so that it symbolizes eternal Sure. You have the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Yeah. You have Jesus calling himself the bread of life. There's all those yeah. other things that come into this. But why didn't he choose the Lamb? You would have think, oh, well, because we talk about the Lamb of God came to save the you know, sacrifice for the world. But no. Well, we have Genesis 14, 18. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, etc. Part so of the, the a service or a uh, a meal was typical. But we also find out later that that, that you know Melchizedek was referenced right as in, in his in priesthood. Hebrews. That's right. Yes. So there is a, a reference to the bread. So in my studies, now I've had a little while. I've had a couple weeks actually. I've been thinking about this. I think about the Lord's Supper a lot. It's, it's one of those unique things that we do as Christians 
around the world, it is the one thing we all do. Everyone who calls themselves Christian will celebrate the Lord's Supper in various forms, but it's the one thing we all do. So when you open up a book called The Doctrines That Divide, and there's an entire chapter on the Lord's Supper, or I have a book called The, Com- the Communion, The Meal That Unites, question mark, <laughs> which is an entire book about the controversies around this one act. It is extraordinary, the controversies. For example, should the bread be gluten-free or not? <laughs> <laughs> well, that goes back to that goes back to the Passover. Was it leavened or unleavened bread? We're glad we have options because Teddy. Well, now we have options. Yes, you can, you can choose it, but they do touch, so we got a problem. Anyway, is it real wine or is it grape juice? Which should it be? Churches divide over this. How often should it be done? Every day, once a week. Bi-weekly, monthly, once a year, twice a year, quarterly. Alistair Begg was talking about the church he grew up in in northern Scotland. Only three times a year. He says, and it's a big deal. They talk about it. They prepare. There's this whole movement as a body towards this event. That it's a big deal. Versus others that do it so frequently that those who are constantly doing it start to forget why they're doing it. He says, I'm not, a, he says, I'm not advocating that. I'm just contrasting it. Another um, issue is who can take it? Anybody? Or that then breaks into the issue of closed communion versus open communion. Open communion means anyone who is a believer may partake. Closed communion is only if you're a member of our, our church or of our denomination. I've never seen anybody carded, but <laughs> there is that distinction. Yeah, um, I remember I, 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 took, I went to, uh, I'm Catholic growing up, and so in high school I took a girl, I think it was evangelical, we went to the Casa, and they, she took communion, I guess it was fine. So a little later, dating Sandy, and she came once with me to one of the churches. My mom was actually like a lay person who was sitting, and Sandy goes, they won't serve me because I'm not Catholic. I'm like, no, this other girl did it, it'd be fine. So we got up there, my mom like pointed at my, Sandy said, no, you over there, like, you don't get it. You don't get it. <laughs> and she's like, see, and she's very embarrassed. I'm like, wow, you were right, I didn't know that. I mean, there is that, who gets it? Then another controversy, who administrates it? Only an ordained minister? Or can you have it in your backyard during your small group? Um, oh, and the, the tiny little debate, which fills both of these books, is what happens to the elements during the ceremony itself. I mentioned this before. You have the Catholic belief of transubstantiation, meaning the bread and the wine actually change to flesh and blood, actually. You have the Lutheran, um, you can say Martin, the Martin Luther position of consubstantiation that it's both. It's both actually bread and wine and it's actually body and blood. You just can't tell. Then you have the uh, Anabaptist position put together by Zwingli that it's a memorial only. This is more Baptistic position, then that's pretty much how we do it here. And then you have the in-between, which is the Calvinistic position or the reform position, that there is actually a real presence of Christ. But it isn't necessarily imbued and embodied in the elements themselves, but that there is a spiritual element to what's going on. What I didn't know is that Zwingli and Luther actually had a debate over this in 1529. Who knew? I always thought Zwingli is this guy over here doing his Anabaptist thing and Luther is over here doing his Luther thing and a little later comes Calvin doing his Calvin thing. But 
Zwingli was in southern Germany on the border of Switzerland. So he's more, more Swiss than German, but he spoke German. Luther is up in the northern part of Germany and of course was a lightning rod for all the controversy and the break with the, the Catholic Church. Apparently, I'll read this, um, Martin Luther was harassed by radicals, horrified by the peasant war, harried by German nobles, and seeing the movement for reform beginning to splinter was furious with his Swiss co-religionists. He was furious with Zwingli and his followers. Under great pressure from friends and anxious to preserve Protestant unity, Luther agreed with reluctance to meet the Swiss brethren for consultation. They met in Marburg in 1529. Luther brought Melanchthon, you may have heard that name, and Brem with him. Zwingli was accompanied by a name I cannot pronounce, Ocalampadadius, and Bucer, B-U-C-E-R, who was another great reformer. At last, the great teachers of the Reformation were meeting face to face. I mean, what a dramatic statement. <clears throat> Luther did not make a good start because he looked Bucer in the eye and said, you are from the evil one. <laughs> and there can be no harmony among us. First salvo in the conversation. <coughs> wow. But, you know, Luther was a hard-nosed Teutonic German. What's interesting is they hammered out massive areas of agreement. They agreed on diverse issues like the Trinity, justification, infant baptism, and the rejection of purgatory. That's incredible. But when they opened the discussion on the Eucharist, there was an immediate impasse. On the table between Zwingli and Luther, Luther wrote in Latin, on the table in chalk, this is my body. And he said, your basic contentions are these. In the last analysis, you wish to prove that the body cannot be in two places at once. In other words, in the elements and also in heaven. Can't be in two places at once. I do not question how Christ can be God and man and how the two natures are joined. God is more powerful than all of our ideas. We must submit to his word. Prove to me that Christ's body is not where the scripture says it is when Christ says, this is my body. Rational proofs, I will not listen to. Corporeal proofs, arguments based on geometric principles, I repudiate, yeah, absolutely. God is beyond all mathematics and the words of God are being revered and carried out in awe. It's God who commands, take, eat, this is my body. I request therefore valid scriptural proof to the contrary. And so every time Zwingli and his counterparts would say something, Luther would say nothing and just point at what he wrote on the table. They would say something else and he would just point. And they would say something else and he would just point. And this went on for two hours. And they left the meeting at an impasse. They agreed on everything else, but not this. Isn't that interesting? Well, I just say that because you're not going to hear that in a sermon anywhere. Yeah? Um. <clears throat> Quick story, if you mind. Um, the, the transubstantiation doctrine is one of the reasons why I partnered with the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. I was in college as a sophomore, searching, asking God lots of questions, still going to the Catholic Church. And then I read Lenny Bruce had died, and that he had, it was in Time Magazine, he'd angered <coughs> a product of Catholics because he made fun of the priests. And he said they would stand before the altar and do this uh, two, four, six, eight, transubstantiate. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that, yeah, that was just common between Lenny Bruce did, and that made wow. Catholics very angry. So I thought, what does this word transubstantiate? Uh -huh. So I looked it up and I went, wow, I'm, as a Catholic, I'm supposed to believe this is the actual body of Christ before I take it. I mentioned that to my mom, like a couple days later, she says, yeah, yeah, you believe that. I go, no, I don't. She says, when you took your first communion in second grade, you said, you believe it. I go, well, I don't even remember second grade or even saying any of that stuff. I didn't know I was supposed to believe it, and I, and I don't believe it. She says, yes, you do. I said, I don't. <laughs> and so that was one of the things that I, I grappled with and saying, mm -hmm. I, just, I just didn't quite, <clears throat> quite go along with that doctrine. 
one sure. of the first things I said. Sure, and it's right. it's part and parcel of the Catholic Church. Yeah, I was raised Catholic as well, and uh, we were taught that if the uh, host was dropped and broke, it would bleed. We were also, uh, there was discussions in, among the church uh, fathers that if the priest dropped the host and a dog ate the host, would the dog have to be killed? I mean, they really, really, really took it seriously, literally. When but I was a kid, you didn't, you didn't touch those either. I mean, you weren't allowed to touch them. Think, think about this. Mm -hmm. But think about this. This extreme that comes over the words that we're looking at right here. How much we've added to this. We're, we're trying to, uh, as I write here, we are wrestling with crude literalism. <clears throat> That's what we have here. Because in other places, Jesus speaks very metaphorically. So why would he change here? Anyway, we're not here to fix that debate. Um, C.S. Lewis was asked by um, a friend in his book, Letters to Malcolm. He wrote Malcolm. And he was trying to answer the question, why don't you ever write about communion? And remember, Lewis was a high church Anglican. So they're right on the border of Catholicism. And he basically says, I don't know enough because I'm not a good enough theologian to even write about it. And this, he, he wrote this. It says, take and eat, not take and understand. Isn't that interesting? But one thing I think we can all agree upon, this is the most sacred act of worship that we do together as a body. Singing together, fine. Hearing the word of God, fine. Praying together, fine. All important. But this, this has been instituted by Christ himself. It is the most sacred act of worship that we do. And guess what? We're going to be doing it about an hour and a half from now. Together. To start the year. What better way to start the year on the Epiphany Sunday than to do this? When Jesus had given thanks, wouldn't you love to have a, a, a transcript of his prayer? What was he thinking? What did he say? We don't know. But he gave thanks first. And then he broke the bread. And said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Years ago, I had a friend. His name was Jeff Brodsky. Amazing fellow. Who, one of his ministries... Uh, was to be a clown, a silent clown, who did evangelism all over the world without speaking. So he could go any country, anywhere. And for one thing, being dressed as a clown, everyone's like, ah, and all the children would come and the people would come. But, with, and he was not one that would speak, he would do it silently. And he would actually present the gospel in pantomime and minister to Hundreds of thousands of people in the slums of Calcutta, places where no one else could go, and no one else would get that kind of crowd. But he showed me once, and I will try to do it poorly for you, one of the pantomimes that he would do in talking about communion. I, hope I meant to bring, bring it, but I'll just mimic it like he did. So... Imagine I have bread. This is my body. A babe born in Bethlehem that we cherish 
and cradle. And yet, he was broken for us. That imagery is so powerful. And we take it for granted. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after the supper, saying, this is my cup, a singular cup. In the new covenant is my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Twice he says, remember. Why does he have to say it twice? Charles Spurgeon says, his sermon on this verse. It seems then that Christians forget Christ. The text implies the possibility of forgetfulness. It is, alas, too well confirmed in our experience, not as a possibility, but as a lamentable fact. It seems at first sight too gross a crime to lay at the door of converted men. It appears almost impossible that those who have been loved with an everlasting love by the eternal Son of God should ever forget that Son. But if startling to the ear, it is, alas, too apparent to the eye to allow us to deny this fact. Forget Him who never forgot us. Forget Him who poured out His blood for our sins. Forget Him who loved us even to death. Can it be possible? Yes, It's not only possible, but conscience confesses that it's too sadly a fault of all of us that we can remember anything except Christ. Can you deny the truth of what I utter? Do you ever find yourself forgetful of Jesus? Some creature steals away your heart and you are unmindful of him upon whom your affection ought to be set. Some earthly business engrosses your attention when you should have your eyes steadily fixed on the cross. In the incessant round of world, 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 the constant din of earth, earth, earth takes away the soul from Christ. Oh, my friends, it's not too sadly true that we can recollect anything but Christ and forget nothing so easily as Him who we ought to remember. We do this in remembrance of Him. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Think about it for a second. In this ceremony, in this ordinance, sacrament, however you want to call it, in this sacred act, we have past, present, and future wrapped up in one. We remember, we reflect on the somberness of the cross and the sacrifice that Christ did on our behalf. In the immediate present, we are participating with the rest of us together in that remembrance, past and present, and we do it in the hope of the future until He comes. All at once, in moments, we've done something that's eternal, past, present, and future. You can also contrast the bread and the wine this way. Bread is easy to make, relatively. I couldn't make it. I go to the store. But relatively easy to make if you have the right know-how and the right materials. It's an immediate participation, something that you do quickly. Wine, on the other hand, the grapes must be grown, tended, fertilized, harvested, and then left to sit, sometimes for years, until they ferment properly to have the appropriate taste or aroma. 
That contrast is a picture of the spiritual life. We have the immediate need of our daily bread, the Word of God on a daily basis. Without it, we perish. At the same time, in the light of sanctification, it takes time to let it permeate the pores so that everything about us, everything that's inside of us, exudes that beauty of Christ. Bread, wine, immediate future. Fascinating, isn't it? The last part, which I'll do quickly here. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. The King James Version reads, eats and drinks damnation on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Whoa, what? This verse bothered the heck out of me as a kid. It scared me. Because, you know, you don't quite understand everything that's going on. And you read this and it says, if you're not worthy, don't take it. Many sermons and illustrations that I read have pastors talk about people who get up and walk out during or prior to the Lord's Supper. He said, one fella never took it. This is in the 30 years I knew him. He never took it. Because he never felt himself to be worthy. They're misunderstanding, I think, what that, this verse means. Because, let, I'll just read you what I wrote. Yes, self-examination is essential. The conclusion, however, to our self-examination should, that be it, should be that it's not about you. No matter what you do, what you say, or what you think, you will never be worthy. Ever. You are not worthy, but Christ is. His body and blood was given and shed for you, for your unworthiness. By his work we can be made worthy and by and by faith he abides in you in all of his fullness. Therefore come repent and proclaim his death until he comes. The table leads us away from ourselves and into his presence where we can find rest. There's a story of a church in England where the elders were the ones who, you know, handed out the elements during the service. And one elder was handing the stuff to a lady at the edge of the, edge of the pews, and she hesitated. In other words, should I take this? Am I worthy? And he said, ma'am, it's for sinners. Go ahead. So what's the warning about? Why is it such a strong warning? Remember the context. You have those who had corrupted the meaning of the supper. Beware of the sin of presumption. When you take something important and treat it casually as if it were unimportant. To take something sacred and give it a yawn. You presume that you know better and are more important than the event or the item that you're involved in. This is hubris and dishonors Christ. You're not dishonoring the elements. That would be like when you stamp on the flag of the United States. The cloth doesn't care, but the nation does. 
when you step on the elements, the bread and the wine could care less. Christ does. You're not dishonoring the server. You're not dishonoring the pastor. You're not dishonoring the church, but you're dishonoring Christ himself. You are staring at him with disdain as an annoyance. It's shameful and it's dangerous. It's not just juice and crackers. So there's a new book on the market from a famous TV preacher named Joseph Prince. And I thought, you know, because I'm looking for resources all the time, and I thought, oh, this came out in October. I wonder what this is about. So I look at the reviews, and I look at the description of it, and my jaw drops as I'm looking at the screen. He says in his book that communion is a means for physical healing. It's the magic of the sacrament that will heal you of your ill. So in the reviews, this one woman comes in and says, this book has changed my life. I've been taking communion multiple times a day and I feel so much better. My chronic pain has been alleviated. Sorry. There's something really wrong with this. I think you can figure it out. It's adding something to the ceremony that was never intended. He didn't say, this is my body which will heal you. Not even close. Because it's about the soul, not about the physical. One historian writes about communion. He said, within their own limits, the early church solved almost by the way the social problem which baffled Rome and baffles Europe still. They had lifted women to her rightful place. They restored the dignity of labor. They abolished uh, beggary. They they had withdrawn the sting of slavery. The secret of the revolution, the Christian revolution, is the selflessness of race and class was forgotten in the supper of the Lord. Everyone, together. It was a new basis for society found in love of the invisible image of God in men and women for whom Christ had died. Think of that. Society couldn't fix it. Society still can't fix it. It's just, it's a cesspool out there. (coughs) But when we come together, we are unified as one body, which chapter 12 will talk all about. We are one body in Christ, in this act, in this ceremony. So there's a story of when Leonardo da Vinci was asked to do that painting, the famous painting. He spent three years doing it. He grouped the disciples into threes, two groups on either side of the central figure of Christ, with Christ's arms outstretched. And in his right hand, he holds a cup, which was painted beautifully with marvelous realism. When the masterpiece was finished, an artist said to a friend, and da Vinci overheard it, Give me your opinion. And they said, oh, that cup, that cup is so real. I can almost reach out and touch it. Immediately, Leonardo da Vinci picked up a brush and painted a glaze over it to obscure it. Because he says, nothing should distract from the figure of Christ. Christ is central not the cup. Isn't that interesting? So today, the first Sunday of the new year, Epiphany Sunday, the Christ child in our arms becomes the savior of us all. And I'm going to end with a prayer for us all.
This is from the Book of Common Prayer published in 1662, and I'll pray it as a blessing for us all. Almighty and merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We've followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We've left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we've done those things which we ought not to have done. There is no health in us. But you, O Lord, have mercy on us, miserable offenders. Spare those, O God, who confess their faults. Restore those that are penitent. According to your promises declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord, and grant, O merciful Father, for his sake, that we might hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of your holy name. Amen.